this early in the morning. <laughs> um, and welcome again to this uh, joint event with the Financial Times. This is the fourth in the series. We are very happy to host Jan Zahadil this morning, uh, the candidate from the CSR, ESR. ECR, ECR, I can't get this right, from the ECR, uh, and we are going to follow the same format as we do with all the other uh, speakers. We will have um, the four sessions, uh, a, general se a general question and then there's three more specific questions, and we will take turns to uh, have this conversation with our candidate this morning. But before I give the floor to Jim, uh, let me remind you of the house rules. Uh, we go up to 10.30. Uh, the first uh, um, sessions will be simply a conversation, but you're welcome to ask questions via Slido. The information on how to log into Slido is here on the, um, <clears throat> on the board. We will be looking at this question, Jim and I, and we will be using this to carry the conversation forward. At the very end, we have kept 20 minutes, like we do with others, uh, to allow our audience here this morning and uh, uh, from, from far away, those who are live streamed, uh, to ask uh, questions. So with that, Jim, if you can introduce our candidate. Hi, good. Yeah, good. It's on the Good. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Jim Brunsden from the Financial Times. I'm one of our staff correspondents here in Brussels. Um, so it's a pleasure to introduce uh, Mr. Jan Zahadril. Um, uh, to who's, as Maria said, is our fourth uh, is our fourth candidate to come and take part in our series of, of Spitz and Candidat interviews. Um, Jan has been a MEP since 2004, since Czech accession. He's a member of the Czech ODS party, and he is president of the Alliance of European Conservatives uh, and Reformists in Europe. Uh, he, um, uh, he is also a vice president of the International Trade Committee in the European Parliament, and uh, he's running on a program to retune the EU. Uh, he's uh, also, um, we've been chatting this morning, he's a known lover of, of hard rock music, um, of Motorhead and ACDC, I believe are two of them. So yeah, also like you're here to sort of rock the EU as well as retune the EU. <laughs> thinking about that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, uh, so um, uh, so it's, a pleasure to, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, we're going to be going through these these four different themes, which are touch on different elements of, of economic policy and, and your program, and, and hopefully have time for a couple of, of uh, general political questions uh, as well. Um, and uh, well, without any further ado, we should uh, we should get started. I think. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, Jim. So, uh, if I may uh, pose the, the the very first question, which is a general question, and it has to do with the growth agenda of uh, of the EU. Um, one of, if you look at the uh, the numbers in productivity terms, you will see that actually the EU is is running behind by comparison to the big other players in, uh, in the world scene. And, and the question is, uh, why? And what can we do about it? And in particular, if you're if you going to be Commission President, how would you, what policies would you use which would be part of your portfolio to try and promote productivity growth and the growth agenda in a sustainable way? Uh, thank you and good morning, everyone. Um, maybe I should start with a... Uh, uh, some, some more general thought what, what the European Commission or how I think European Commission should work and then uh, from that I will derive uh, also some practical tools how we can influence economic environment and uh, the, uh, the growth issue. Uh, probably unlike many other candidates I do not consider European Commission to be something like a quasi-government. Uh, I believe that European Commission should be scaled back, should act 
more like a group of civil servants. And I definitely, if I look at, at Mr. Juncker, for instance, this is definitely uh, the example which I wouldn't like to follow, because Mr. Juncker acts more like a, a prime minister of some European government than like a civil servant. Of course, there are political people in the Commission. There are people that have been uh, selected or picked up uh, in their home countries uh, by some political deal, so they are not members of any political party, but uh, basically the Commission acts like a, a body politic. This is not my idea how the Commission should act. So, uh, I am not very much in favour, uh, therefore, uh, for the Commission to take some uh, grand strategies, something, for instance, uh, Mr. Juncker presented as a stimulus package. I believe that European Commission should use only those instruments that are attributed to it by the treaties. And there are two basic instruments <coughs> Commission could use uh, and influence. One is legislation and the other one is budget. Uh, the structure of budget is somehow given in advance. We talk about multi-annual financial framework, but still we know that we will probably not escape from the structure that some 40% is spent on agriculture, another more or less 40% on cohesion funds, and then uh, the, the, the remain uh, will will go for external action and uh, some external policies and bureaucracy. So I think that uh, when it comes to budget, Commission operates you know, on a very limited scale, but it could use or it could redefine the criteria according which those cohesion funds, particularly cohesion funds, are used in order to enhance. Uh, to invest more to science, development, research, innovation, technologies, to support uh, great uh, infrastructure projects throughout Europe, uh, and uh, things that are natural preconditions for any growth. When it comes to legislation, uh, I believe that the Commission should be a bit uh, more ambitious, and I always say that uh, my, my first step, if I was elected Commission President would be to freeze all new legislation the day after. Uh, with a, with few exceptions, I would probably continue with uh, free trade agreements and investment agreements, but uh, to freeze all uh, all ongoing legislation uh, and to make something uh, or to start to make something which I call great legal review, which would be a complete reassessment of the whole package of acu communitaire. Because we have a lot of uh, uh, directives or a lot of, lot of uh, legal acts that are either outdated or unused or uh, somehow uh, burdening uh, the economic environment uh, that are bringing some additional costs and that uh, therefore are not good for growth. Uh, there is a uh, one body which is called Regulatory Scrutiny Board, which somehow is assessing uh, new upcoming legislation. But the problem is that it is mostly composed from uh, civil servants uh, from the Commission. Uh, I would like. <laughs> oh. First casualty. <laughs> First casualty. <laughs> it's okay. I, I would like to somehow reshuffle that. I think that it would be, or it should be rather composed from some independent experts. I would like uh, to have this board uh, 
to be appointed not by the Commission uh, or the Parliament, but by uh, national governments uh, rather than that. Uh, and it should be fulfilled rather by people from business, not by MEPs or, uh, or civil servants from the Commission. Uh, and I think that they should make some general due diligence or impact assessment of all legislations which is to be prepared, but also all existing legislation, and then make some general proposal which directives we can get rid of and which directives are harmful for business and which directives are suppressing the growth. So that would be uh, some fundamental, you know, plan to do. And again, as I said before, I don't agree with, with the idea of the Commission as a political body, as a quasi-government or something like that. So I'm, I'm a bit skeptical towards some, you know, big long-term strategies like uh, like uh, Mr. Juncker presented time to time. Sorry, if, I, if, I could just, if I could just jump in there on, on a couple of points. Um, I'm curious about an element of your programme here, because generally you're saying we should strip the EU back to the essentials, that the EU shouldn't take on um, tasks, for example, like it shouldn't take on responsibility for things that are best done at national level. Shouldn't It shouldn't, for example, go on a crusade to try and solve youth unemployment because it doesn't have the tools to do it. On the other hand, in your programme, you say that we shouldn't touch the cohesion policy budget, that the regional aid budget, especially the cohesion fund, should still be there. So why is it that we should cut back lots of other types of EU activity, but it's still okay for Viktor Orban to get his money to buy his football stadium and his, and his model train line in his hometown? Uh, yeah, that, uh, that's the, that's the uh, correct point, and I think that we don't need to reduce the size of this cohesion budget, but we need to redefine the criteria uh, by which those money are spent, so they couldn't be wasted for, you know, those projects you have mentioned, uh, some uh, social projects, uh, so say, but uh, they they could be uh, used only for. A worthwhile projects that that will be uh, beneficial for economy as i said before infrastructure uh, innovations research things like that so we should we should redefine the criteria but we, but we have an army of civil servants at the moment who are trying to make sure the money is not misspent and we still end up with victor orban's football stadium True, and this is, in my feeling, because criteria are not strict enough, they are too wide, they are too vague, they are too unconcrete. So I believe that if we put a set of very concrete uh, criteria, uh, <coughs> according which those money could be spent, we will escape from, from that trap that they are misspent for something mm -hmm. that could be even ridiculed later on. Uh I would really like you to sort of stay with the point on, on what the Commission can do to promote growth, even a scaled-down Commission in the way that you, you envisage it. But before I do that, I mean, I'd like to pick a little bit on the political Commission issue. Uh, we have views, and you seem to be on very much on one side of the spectrum of this view, which is that this should not be political. But on the, the other side, the, the argument is that all the decisions that the Commission is involved with, from competition all the way to growth and the way they apply fiscal rules, have got political elements in it. So isn't it better the argument goes, to try and be straightforward about it and transparent that this is a political issue and therefore we need to be political rather than just pretend that we are apolitical in an environment where political decisions are all it, it is important. Uh, yeah, this is one way how to look at that. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm buying a different view. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, 
general European Union uh, doesn't exist per se. European Union is, a, is an organization which, which was created by member states uh, to take care about some issues, some particular issues, well-defined issues, which are better uh, uh, to be worked out on a, on a common level, on the European level. So, in fact, uh, EU and its institutions should be rather servants of member states than, than their supervisors. And that's a rather different idea than probably would be, would be bought and represented by some other candidates, uh, because they think that uh, there should be some you know, supreme control of European institutions over the national governments. I think that the other way around is the correct way. Okay. Well, can we go on this growth agenda? I mean, what are the priorities in the EU, in your, in your view? on the growth agenda, because we are talking about how to generate growth in the EU. What should the Commission do concretely to promote growth in the EU? Well, again, uh, I said that uh, what we need to, is to make legislation more transparent, more simple, and, and less burdensome for, for businesses. And that, that's the main thing. No, I, I don't believe that European Commission should try to create some, you know, out of budget uh, uh, expenditures or sources. Uh, it has no authority for doing that. I know that Mr. Juncker in his uh, incentive package or, or stimulus was trying to invite or to encourage private businesses to participate. Again, I don't think that this is, this is the right way to do that because generally speaking, hmm. <clears throat> if, we, if we talk about EU growth, uh, we have to admit that, in fact, we are talking about the growth of 20, 27, maybe still 28 member states, and they are very diverse. Uh, you have countries that are relatively very rich uh, when it comes to GDP per capita, uh, Germany, Netherlands. On the other hand, countries that are relatively very poor, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, Baltic states, it's two or two or three times uh, difference between those countries when you measure them uh, according to GDP per capita. They have different tax systems, they have different pension systems, they have different social systems, they have different welfare systems. Uh, all companies and businesses pay taxes in nation states, not to the European Union. This is probably another part of the story we can touch later, whether there should be uh, some euro tax or some own resources of the European budget. Uh, I'm one of those who disagree with that, okay. uh, because I think that the uh, European budget should be uh, directly linked to national governments and dependent on them. So I think that European Union should act exact, or European Commission should exactly within the framework which is given to it by treaties, not to go beyond. Okay. So, Just jump in, jump in on that, because um, we've got a couple more minutes left in this section. You've talked about this great review, basically a bonfire of the, of the regulations. Every commission which takes office promises to do that. At least everyone that I mean, everyone that I can I can think of going back at least 15 years has promised to do that. Um, the current one, you began with Franz Timmermans, who was made directly responsible for trying to do a bonfire of the regulations. Even some of the ones Juncker identified during his campaign as being completely ridiculous, so health and safety standards for hairdressers or you know eco design for toasters, they ended up keeping most of those because they actually turned out one way or another to be quite useful. So why do you think you're going to be able to find ones that they haven't found that you can eliminate? Well, again, uh, I think that they made some promises before the elections. They didn't stick to that after the elections. I remember that it was actually uh, former Commission President Barroso who started that uh, in his first term, and he uh, even 
he was able even to, to cancel or to abolish some redundant uh, directives, but he didn't continue. And I think that if we have a really independent regulatory assessment body, uh, which will take care of the business environment, uh, we, can, we can go the right way and we can achieve and we can define some concrete pieces of legislations that are so harmful for businesses and for business environment and for growth that uh, there would be very uneasy to argue uh, against that and against, against abolishment of those particular pieces of legislation. But, but if they're so harmful, why haven't we found them already? I mean, Gunter Verheugen in the Barroso, as you said, in the Barroso One Commission was in charge of finding low-hanging fruit that could be abolished and in the end it it turned out to be a pretty poor harvest. Really. No one was really interested in doing that. There was just uh, some speculations and talks about that. But at the end, we all know that uh, both the Commission and the Parliament have two two main ways uh, how to legitimize themselves. And one of those ways is to, is to produce more legislation. And I think that sometimes, sometimes could be better if uh, the Parliament, particularly the Parliament, stops and says, guys, Enough was enough. Let's look at that. Let's let's look back a little bit, and let's try to find some pieces we haven't worked out very well, and we can get rid of them. If I may, you're making a very good sort of point about good legislation. I think I think this point is clear, uh, but. If I may go back to the role of the Commission in terms of promoting this, apart from good legislation, which is of course is a clear point. Didn't you see a role for the Commission to promote development, and particularly sustainable development, in an era of climate change? Is there a role for the Commission to play uh, in, this, in, this, in this particular issue? Again, uh, legislation, that's one point. And uh, I think that if we talk about reassessment of legislation or general legal review, we have, to, we have not to be shy to look also at some pieces of environmental legislation, because sometimes good intentions are not enough, and uh, some of those pieces might need some review. And secondly, if there is uh, some tool that could be used for, let's say, promoting uh, more environmentally friendly approach, this is uh, that 40% that are spent on the common agricultural policy. So let's move a little bit from a production-oriented uh, support to some more, you know, innovation, uh, technology or new technologies oriented or green technologies oriented or environmentally friendly oriented projects that could be supported from the from the CAP budget because it's a big chunk of money. Yeah. So. I think we are, uh, yeah, we are just about running on this theme. I think yeah. we should move on to trade. Yeah, exactly. So we're moving on to the second section. We trade. have a slide for this, um, actually. Yeah, we do. And uh, we have a slide for this. And also, uh, for those of you who have noticed that I'm checking my phone, it's not because I'm trying to work out if Theresa May has resigned yet. It's, um, <laughs> it's because we have, uh, we have this amazing piece of software called Slido, which even I can operate, and I usually can't operate any machinery more complicated than a spoon. So um, it's uh, very good and basically lets you post your questions um, that you'd like us to ask uh, to, to ask Jan. We've had some very good questions already, which I'm going to weave in in, in, the, in the sections to, to come. Um, but on, our next section in the uh, in the debate is on trade. So we have a slide here which basically just rams home uh, the, the basically the EU's strength as, as an international trading partner and also the extent to which our economic growth is, is linked to uh, internal trade within the single market and external trade. 
This is a particularly pertinent section for this debate uh, because, Jan, you've, you've made this a, a big part of your programme, saying that the EU should be the, the, the champion of, of trade deals. You've talked about doing another 10 trade deals like EU-Japan. You said that over the next, next 10 years we should aim to have, uh, we should aim to replicate that around the world. Um, but on the, my question really is that it goes, goes to another part of your programme, which is you, you basically, your programme is framed around the idea that Europe has lost touch with what people want, that people are there with a very clear message, and that's not what the European Union is doing. But surely one of the clearest messages people have been sending in recent years is that they don't want more FTAs. And we saw that with TTIP, we saw that with CETA. Uh, there's not wild enthusiasm about doing a trade negotiation again with, with Donald Trump's administration. Um, even the, the European Parliament um, struck, well, actually was completely unable in the end to give its endorsement to the start of trade talks with the US. So don't you think on this issue perhaps it's your programme which is out of step with public opinion? Uh, perhaps. <laughs> I, uh in, in, in that particular area, uh, I believe it's the contrary, and I really believe if there is any agenda, any single agenda that deserves to be better promoted, it's the uh, agenda of international trade. And this is because it is uh, the one which is fully 100% Europeanized. And uh, I am skeptical uh, to certain aspects to European, of European integration. Uh, I'm skeptical, uh, uh, sometimes uh, very skeptical towards certain aspects, but when I consider myself to be pretty much pro-European, it is a trade agenda. And I think that we have to be able to win the argument uh, with uh, that part of the public, which is uh, skeptical towards that. Uh, of course, businesses are enthusiastic. I think that uh, we can use arguments, we can use figures, we can use numbers. Uh, I think that in this particular agenda, European Union was quite successful. Uh, uh, we've uh, concluded several free trade agreements. Uh, funny thing is that uh, if I just look at the statistics and the figures in my own small Central European country, I can see three major Asian uh, investors coming, and this is uh, South Korea, uh, this is Japan, and this is Singapore. All three have free trade agreements uh, with the European Union. So I think that we should be able to win this argument. I really believe that uh, European Union should try to make it uh, uh, one of the main issues for the future, to be in the forefront of trade agenda, to be a pioneer of uh, worldwide free trade, of removal of trade barriers, and despite you know, all difficulties uh, with the United States and some other countries, I think that we should go for that. Well, actually, the priorities is the question that our, actually, our audience is asking, what are your trade priorities? You're beginning to elaborate on this. Can I bring you, so from the issue of the U.S., you mentioned the U.S. Uh, in passing. Um, so we are having a current administration that is not very friendly to the argument you just described. It's not very friendly to, well, certainly not very friendly to Europe, but it's not very friendly to many, actually. Um, so the U.S. is, a, is, a, is, important to, is important to the EU for its trade. It's a main trade partner. Um, and yet it is antagonizing us. It's imposed tariffs and very, it is very likely that we'll impose tariffs again on, on an industry that is very important for job creation in Europe. Uh, what would be your reaction to, uh, to potential tariffs coming from the US if you are the, uh, the next the commission president? Well, uh, of course, if they introduce some tariffs on our exports, we have to retaliate. We have to respond in a similar or same way. Uh, at the same time, we have to try to negotiate and to persuade them that uh, uh, it's not a good way uh, to 
to build some future relations. I absolutely admit that uh, it would not be easy as US elections, presidential elections are approaching. Probably uh, the attitude of Mr. Trump will not change much. But again, if you look at the trade volume and uh, the volume of mutual investments between Europe or EU and the United States is huge. Uh, and the question is, to which, of course, it's, it's, not, it's not nice to have tariffs uh, on some particular items that are exported from Europe to the United States. But the question is, to which extent uh, are they really harmful? Uh, what, what is, the, what is uh, let's say, more psychological uh, barrier, and what is the real impact of the overall volume of, uh, of our mutual trade? Because, look, uh, there was a big noise uh, over TTIP. Uh, then it was scrapped, and it, it was at least temporarily, I don't know for how long, frozen. But even without TTIP, uh, the transatlantic market between US and EU is huge, it's big. And it will not disappear just because of uh, tariffs on, on uh, aluminium or some other item. So yes, it's unpleasant, it's not nice, it's controversial, it's uh, antagonizing both sides. But on the other hand, uh, we have to admit that still uh, the, the link between those two markets is so strong that I, I firmly hope that it will not be damaged even by some temporary protectionist measures. But why retaliate? Because the reason why I'm asking that is because when we retaliate, we saw it also on the tariffs that we posed on steel, uh, it's not just against the US, it's against the rest of the world in order to prevent substitution effects. Now, this surely goes, if we do this on the car industry, yeah. this surely goes against all the <laughs> principles you described about the benefits of open trade. Why are we playing the game as opposed to stopping it? Well, I think that if someone comes with, with such a measure, with such a protectionist measure, you cannot just say, okay, I will not react. You, you have to react. <laughs> this is, this is that's obvious. It's, it's, a, it's a political game. And of course, what we have to avoid is to, is to uh, uh, create or to start some vicious circle uh, or some spiral uh, up, which goes upwards and which creates more and more protectionist measures and barriers. So yes, if they start with something, we have to try to negotiate, but we have to be ready to retaliate as well. Thanks very much. Uh, got a question on, on Slido from, from the audience. Thank you very much. Um, it's a very straightforward question, but very helpful, which is just, what would your trade priorities actually actually be? I mean, would your trade priority be to take forward the talks with the US, or are there actually more, more pressing issues that need to be dealt with on trade? For example, with, with China, with this whole push now to be, quote, less naive or, or less, less stupid, as some people are saying, in, a, in, our, in our trade relations with China. But what, you know, since trade policy, in a way, you've got limited bandwidth and you have to pick your targets. It's a bit like competition policy, what would, what would your priorities be? We have uh, several uh, future FTAs in the pipeline already, uh, with Vietnam, for instance, with Australia, with New Zealand. Uh, there are advancing talks about uh, some multilateral agreements with Mercosur and with ASEAN. Uh, and of course, China uh, is any negotiations with China are still far away from any free trade agreement. But I think that we should not, we should not follow this strict uh, approach uh, of United States uh, because this is motivated, my feeling is 
that this is not motivated uh, economically, but mostly geopolitically. US takes China as a geopolitical rival and acts and behaves accordingly. I think that for us, for Europe, uh, China is not a geopolitical rival on the first place, but rather trade and economic partner, uh, and then only maybe geopolitical rival. Of course, we have to insist on uh, China sticking with uh, some principles and rules. Uh, we should uh, present our cases. Uh, we should push them to open their markets to European companies uh, in the same manner like uh, European market is open to Chinese. Uh, we should insist that we should be allowed to participate in their public procurement procedures. Uh, we uh, should uh, insist on geographical protections and all those things. Uh, we already have uh, investment screening procedure in place which could check out some of their investments to our strategic areas. Uh, so some measures are already here. Very recently, it was I think two weeks ago, uh, European Parliament also adopted a resolution uh, on better control of uh, some of their uh, telecommunications technologies uh, that might be that might be uh, admitted to to, the, to tender for this uh, 5G uh, network. So uh, yes, I think that. Uh, we have to introduce certain mechanisms of control, but uh, on the other hand, China is and has been strategic partner. There was strategic partnership signed between European Union and China back in 2003. Uh, we do not take it first and foremost as a geopolitical rival. So I think that uh, we do not need to, to follow, even if Mr. Trump asked for that, we do not need to follow that very strict US approach when it comes to China. Yeah, I was just going to say, China has been a member of the WTO since 2001, and uh, there's been, been now, you know, almost 20 years, coming up to 20 years, a member, and China has not complied with those rules of the game that you just described. Why should, why do you think that it will, we can make China comply with those rules we just described, and therefore continue to consider China a strategic partner? Well, we have to try. Unfortunately, WTO is uh, to some extent paralyzed uh, because of the lack of, arbit uh, of judges that could sit in the arbitrate panels. This is uh, partly due a very special US approach to that organization. The uh, question is whether uh, uh, US really want WTO to be reformed or whether uh, they do want uh, this to be completely abolished and uh, they want to replace it with uh, some other organization on, on some different principles. Uh, also China, by the way, uh, has two cases against the European Union in the WTO and this is that market economy status uh, because they accuse us that we change the, the rules of the game uh, during the game. So uh, this, is, this is another part of the story and no one knows how it could end up because now there is no one to decide as there's a lack of those judges. So uh, there are cases between EU and, and China. If WTO functions accordingly uh, and properly, uh, we can sort it out via WTO, but if it works uh, accordingly and properly. 
which is not the case at the moment. And, I mean, the, the, the evidence of the last couple of days, at least, looking at the negotiations which are going on between the Chinese and uh, Robert Lighthizer in Washington, is that it's the American approach which is bearing fruit with China. I mean, they've got a, a high-level team from, from Beijing who are there in Washington right now, agreeing to buy more American products, let in more, uh, open up their market to, to US investment. Um, on the other hand, in Brussels, we're struggling to even get the Chinese to engage with negotiations on an investment treaty with our, with our more sort of soft, soft-handed approach. So, um, what, what, you know, why, why is it that the Trump approach is wrong in that case? No, but I, I, I would still rather stick with that soft diplomacy way than uh, to follow Mr. Trump. But in the meantime, though, China is getting uh, incredible advantages that they can exercise on the EU. So could it be that we will be running behind China in ways that we cannot achieve? It has to be reciprocated. We can achieve that only via negotiations. And again, I uh, still believe that uh, there is no reason at this moment to follow this rather confrontational approach of the United States. And in terms of priorities, is w reforming the WTO something that you would like to pursue? Yes, absolutely. I think that it has to be made workable. It has to be made... Uh, uh, it has to be changed in such a way that would fit everyone and that mm -hmm. would make comfortable everyone. And this is, this is not the case at the moment. And uh, uh, speaking frankly, without US, we will not... Without active engagement of U.S., we will not achieve any real reform of the WTO. So you would consider the U.S. Uh, an ally in trying to contain China in this respect? Uh, Even if it's, it's antagonistic? Maybe, it's maybe too a strong wording. Uh, I think that we can, we can play uh, both parts of the game, uh, U.S. and China as well. And I don't think that we need, uh, we need at each and every case, and despite the fact that I'm very pro-Atlantic, I don't think that we need to follow U.S. approach in each and every case. Mm -hmm. So on China, I would choose a slightly different approach. Okay. I've got, a, got an excellent question on Slido, which uh, is China, very much China relevant, which is, do you see the 16 plus one summit in Dubrovnik next week as an attempt to divide the EU? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, and I said that several times uh, before, and I uh, uh, really... I genuinely do not understand those concerns of uh, some of my EU friends and on, on, of particularly the Commission uh, that accuse uh, that Chinese activity uh, as something divisive for, for the European Union. I believe in flexible European Union. I believe that states should have the right to integrate or to to create various interest groups according their own wishes, uh, like you have, you know, uh, Benelux and V4 and, and Hanseatic League. So now you have this 16 plus one. I don't think that this is divisive for the EU. This is just for me a good example of uh, the flexible model for European integration, which I would like to follow. Fine point taken, but Russia is not a member of the Hanseatic League, for example. <laughs> No, uh, but uh, 16 plus 1 contains mostly countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, some of them EU members, some of them not EU members. Uh, and uh, there are Baltic states, there are V4 countries, there are countries like Serbia and others. And I think that uh, from that point of view, it's perfectly okay. But you don't think that uh, it will require a united front when it comes to sort of policies vis-a-vis -vis China, and that the 16 plus one, or indeed other initiatives that are in Europe, are actually dividing Europe in this respect, and they're undermining the ability of the EU to, to deal with China. No, I don't no. think so. Okay, no. very clear. Okay, uh, 
Jim? So I think we're nearly out, nearly out of time on, on, on Yes, indeed. I think we should uh, perhaps move on to the... Uh, fight against the clock. We will actually come, we will come back to issues of China when we, in the last part when we talk about competition, and I think we should zoom in on specific issues. But before we do that, I'd like to, to go to the EU and euro area reform as, uh, as the next topic. We actually have a slide for this, if you can put up the, uh, the slide. Um, this is a, a slide that we show in this, uh, by means of introduction. It is an attempt to, to map the progress that we've made in terms of convergence in Europe, and red being uh, very little progress, if not regress in some occasions, and very dark green uh, being the progress that we've made in terms of, of convergence. If you were the European Commission President, uh, this will be the Europe that we will inherit. And you know, the growth agenda, the trade agenda, and all the agendas that you have to deal with uh, will be uh, at the at the, with a background of actually divergences in Europe, and in particular in the Eurozone. If you look at here, uh, the red areas here in the Eurozone, and, and, and they are also in the UK, which is, of course, uh, an interesting thing to observe. How do you deal with that? Well, first of all, if you, if you look at that graph, and if you look at those green parts with uh, strong or weak overperformance, they mostly represent uh, Central and Eastern Europe, the, the former so-called communist countries, and I believe that this is only natural because they, those countries started from much lower base, uh, so uh, a bigger growth, a higher growth could be only expected and expectable and should be welcome because despite that strong or weak overperformance, they are still lagging behind and they are still below European average. So uh, I think that regardless whether they are part of the Eurozone or not, it should be encouraged. And they, they can expect, in my feeling, even in the future, a growth which will be above European average. If you look at the, the V4 countries, they are uh, performing on some 3 to 4% of uh, GDP growth uh, annually, uh, which is uh, far above uh, European average. Uh, on the other hand, some countries, uh, some old member countries, because of the structure of their economy, uh, because of some structural problems or some systemic problems, or because some ill-designed welfare system uh, are suffering from from uh, underperformance. I think that, again, uh, as usual, European Commission has uh, two ways how to deal with things, two main instruments. I talked about legislation, I talked about budget. Uh, there is uh, nothing more or no more uh, viable instruments European Commission can use. And speaking about Eurozone itself, uh, then the monetary policy is fully uh, under control of the European Central Bank, which is independent institution. And it cannot be anyhow influenced by the European Commission. Uh, what I believe is uh, that uh, a precondition for a good growth doesn't mean that you necessarily need to be a member of the Eurozone. Because you have countries that are parts of the Eurozone, you have countries that are not. If you look at uh, this map, countries of stronger overperformance, are, uh, most of them are not part of the Eurozone. Uh, as you probably know, what is written in our manifesto is that we are promoting a multi-currency union instead of one currency union. So what what I would be in favor of would be to legally put all currencies uh, under uh, one legal umbrella, so they would be all made equal. Uh, I would abandon this, you know, uh, rather, let's say, 
uh, a political expression that the uh, European Union should have only one currency. Uh, I think that legally it should, it could have, uh, not it should have, but could have more currencies than one, and they should be all legally equal. And I would even go uh, that far that I would. Uh, I would introduce some provision to uh, EU treaties, to, to primary law, that would allow a state to leave the Eurozone if it is not able to fulfill the criteria, to fulfill the stability and growth pact, uh, to stick with the public debt or the level of inflation, uh, because otherwise it could uh, it could put, and we can we can see that uh, again on that uh, on that graph, it could put some states into particularly different situations difficult situation. So, um, again, uh, I think that uh, when it comes to uh, what European Commission can do, uh, I will not repeat uh, those things about legislation, but when it comes to uh, budgetary instruments, uh, it could somehow reshuffle or redefine the way how European funds are used in order to enhance uh, those projects that might be beneficial for economy. Just picking up on this, on the multi-currency point, have you ever detected in any shape or form any pressure from Brussels for the Czech Republic to, to adopt the, the euro? Because, I mean, if that doesn't exist, why, why, why place such emphasis on having a multi-currency union if there's no pressure to join the well, euro? Well, it doesn't exist in reality, but it exists de jure because the euro, we are obliged one day to adopt euro. Uh, no one knows, of course, there, there is no deadline for that. It could be, you know, delayed indefinitely to the future. But I think that healthier would be to have some legal provision in, in the fundamental treaties that would allow to make the other option. But can, so can I ask, what do you mean by legal? The, the currency in, in Sweden is a legal currency, it's a legal tender, it's not illegal. What do you mean by making it legal? Uh, I think that there should be a certain paragraph, a wording, uh, a legal provision which says that European Union is not just a zone of one currency, but more than one currency. Or that all currencies used uh, uh, in, on the territory of the European Union are legally equal, let's say. Okay. Uh, so, I just want to go to a, a broader question on, on Slido that's relevant to this to this topic, which is um, one of one of our audience asks, what would which is relevant to this? What would you do to try and uh, remedy or fix the east-west the east-west divide in Europe, which I guess is, a, is an economic divide as well as a polit political divide in some ways. Uh, if you, again, if you look at that, uh, despite the fact that there is a, a better or or higher than average growth in Central and Eastern Europe, I believe that it will take, not years, it will take maybe one generation until uh, some uh, sustainable convergence is achieved. And uh, what we can only do is to encourage uh, higher growth in those countries by those instruments we have in our hands, uh, by those instruments uh, we can use. Uh, if you look at some countries that joined uh, European Union or then European communities and later on Eurozone, uh, and they are still lagging behind uh, the, the European average or they are below European average, then you can see that this is also a generational task. It cannot be done overnight. We, uh, that again, 
case of my own country. We joined the European Union in 2004. Uh, we started to build market economy in uh, 1989 after uh, 40 years of destructive uh, communist rule, and we are still not there. We are still not even at the average. We are in some 85% of the European average measured in GDP per capita. So it's not that easy task. It's yet to expect that it would be done during five or ten years, uh, even with the help of all those cohesion funds and uh, all, all you know, assistance of the European Union, it would be pretty unrealistic. Can I ask, you talked about the, the making provisions for leaving the Eurozone if some countries do not fulfill certain uh, the debt criteria you mentioned. Um, do you believe that there can be an orderly exit from the Euro? Yes. Yes, I believe that it should be made legally possible. Legally possible, but can it be orderly in the sense that the markets are not going to attack and basically destroy the euro? Sure, it should be part of the procedure, and that that procedure should be well legally defined in such a way that it could be an orderly exit. But it, it's not entirely up to the law to, to establish an orderly exit. The markets have views. That's true, uh, but the, the first and foremost precondition is to have it well legally defined. Uh, there has to be some phasing out uh, of such a procedure. So I believe it would be healthy if there is there's yeah. no such specific procedure codified in European treaties at the moment. I would welcome if there was one. I see. Okay. Clear? I'd point out at this point that we, we have an article in the treaties to do with leaving the EU. And um, while that option is legally there, yeah. in practice it's proving that, that, exactly, uh, somewhat difficult exactly. to enact. But to leave, to leave Eurozone uh, doesn't mean uh, it's not the same like to leave the EU. Surely it's harder. It's much harder, no? <laughs> is it not? Surely, surely it's much harder. I mean, uh, in theory, leaving the EU should legally therefore, be... Therefore, it needs appropriate legal coverage. Right. Um, okay. Okay. I wanted to, if I may, zoom again on the on the. If you were elected uh, um, uh, president of the Commission, one of the first things you would have to do in November is to monitor countries on their fiscal positions. That is the first thing, actually, that you would, you might have to do. Uh, and actually, bringing it back to your uh, your uh, argument about not a political commission, you will have to take a view as to whether the fiscal budgets that countries yeah. uh, put forward uh, is uh, according to the rules. Yeah. How would you do that? That's, uh, I think this is a task for the Commission. Okay. Absolutely. Be because the Commission should be a watchdog of treaties. And, I mean, all treaties. So it should be also a watchdog of the rules. And it should be very strict uh, on those countries that are part of the Eurozone, whether they are still in accordance with all their commitments. So that's, that's I believe, a, really a task for the Commission. Be and very strict on this. Okay, no, that's clear. But do you believe that these rules have served Europe well? Do you think they are good rules and therefore they're worth enforcing? Well, uh, maybe uh, they would serve better uh, if Eurozone has less members. Because, again, uh, the, the problem of the Eurozone, I think, is that for, not for economic, but for political reasons, it includes also countries that altogether do not create what is called an optimum currency area. And that leads to a situation where, in fact, you had uh, a debt union, a, a transfer union, a union which is very much dependent on some fiscal transfers from one part to another part. And the question is whether it is in long term uh, horizon sustainable? I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe not. But those countries who are 
within that uh, transfer union, those countries who are paying, in fact, uh, uh, they can have also other benefits. That's true, because in, in the case of Germany, definitely uh, euro is beneficial for the economy. But on the other hand, they are the, 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 the net payers when it comes to fiscal transfers. The question is whether politically it is in long term sustainable for German public, for German political class, for the establishment. So far, it seemed to be so. Uh, the question is whether it will be the same in 10 or 15 years. In, in that case, who, who do you think should leave? Sorry? Who, who do you think should leave? Sorry. <laughs> no, uh, I will leave that without any particular comment, <laughs> if you allow me. Understood. Um, actually, I've got a question from the audience, which is it's, um, it's slightly veering, slightly off topic, but I'm keen to get as many questions from the audience in. Um, and it goes back to something we were discussing before. Would you be ready to cut inefficient agricultural spending, so cut the CAP, including CAP for the Czech Republic, if the money is effectively going to rich landowners? I would rather, uh, as well as in the case of cohesion fund, I would rather redefine the criteria for using those agriculture funds. And as I mentioned before, uh, I would rather redefine them away from just production-oriented uh, funding to more environmentally friendly oriented funding. Uh, yesterday we had a very good conference uh, nearby in a library survey about uh, the water problem in Europe, about droughts, about drying lands, about shrinking of underwater supply. And this is exactly environmental problem that could be at least partly sorted out by redefining criteria for CAP funding uh, in favor of land conservation, land protection, uh, better treatment of, of, of soil, uh, and not only production-oriented uh, uh, funding of agriculture. Mm -hmm. So rather than cutting, I would rather redefine the criteria that I used for funding. Actually, I was curious about the, the, the conference that, that took place yesterday, the, the Blue Green Growth Conference, because you have been, down the years, one of the more, one of the more outspoken climate, climate change skeptics in the European Parliament. That's not true. Uh, I think that this is uh, this is written in, in the Wikipedia because uh, I have uh, somehow uh, visited. Uh, I, I was I was one of those visible MEPs during uh, performance of that movie, the, the, the great the great climate change swindle. Yes. But does it's an interesting movie. It's a provocation, intellectual provocation, no doubt about it. But uh, by profession, uh, I am environmental engineer, and I I have a master's in, uh, of science in water technologies. So I am not climate skeptic, uh, but uh, I think that everything has to be based on based on scientific evidence uh, and. Uh, we can uh, then we can work with that. But, but do you think that the climate change and policies to support the reversal um, should be a priority for the next commission? Well, I think that uh, we should work with that. Uh, I think we have tools how to work with that. Uh, one is, for instance, the budget for the CAP, and the other uh, tool might be investment to let's say, and more environmentally friendly technologies, uh, innovations, and uh, the way how to encourage states to, uh, to uh, invest into that area. So yes, I think that we should go this way. But do you think also, for example, would you go as far as saying that uh, trade treaties that you support should have environmental clauses in them? And they, they, should they already have. Yeah, and they should they we continue have, to do that. Yeah, that it, it's there, that they already have it. <laughs>
for the new ones, I mean, but I'm thinking of the I US here. I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go above, uh, above the standard that is now an obvious standard in, in the current FTAs or uh, the, the current model of FTAs we are concluding. But uh, there is uh, already, in each and every of them, there is one, at least one environmental chapter that speaks about that. Okay. And can I ask about the digital aspect of this? Do you think that, the, what do you think about the digital technology, Europe's world in there, and how should the Commission deal with the challenges of the digital agenda? Well, again, uh, funding into connectivity, mm -hmm. uh, funding, you know, uh, free movement of, of information and uh, uh, some common approach, but that could be done also in the, on, uh, in the Council on the intergovernmental basis. Uh, of uh, introducing some new technologies, that's uh, that's obvious. That that has to be done and must be done. Okay, thank you, Jim. Any questions? No, oh, I, I think we're running out of time. Yeah, well, like Marty McFly, we are out of time. Okay, uh, no. So I think we should move to the last uh, part of thematic yeah, part on competition. On, on competition policy. Uh, so reading your reading your program, there's a, there's a section there where you say that Europe has lost the capacity for critical self-reflection. Um, competition policy, on the other hand, is an area where there seems to be plenty of like, very critical self-reflection going, going on at the moment. The French and the German governments want to basically rip up the merger rules as we know them at the moment. Mm. They, one thing they want to do is give the European Council a veto, a veto power over competition, decision, competition decisions. And they're not alone. You've got the German industry lobby as well, which has called for some, some quite far-reaching changes. Um, I mean, what do you make of this? Where does, where does this kind of enforcement fit in with your vision of Europe and particularly your, your very... Uh, your, you're very, in a, if I can say so, council-driven vision of Europe. You're one where the member states stay very, stay very much in charge. What do you think of some of these ideas? Again, if there is any task for the Commission, uh, a part of promoting trade and uh, taking care of fiscal discipline, then it is a competition agenda. And I have to admit that, uh, in my feeling, Commissioner Vestager did a very good job uh, uh, she annoyed a lot of people by doing that, uh, but she did a good job, uh, and the whole DG competition did a good job as well. And I think that this is this is one thing, this is one approach. Uh, we, or I, would be happy happy to continue because she really was trying to uh, to create a level playing field for businesses, not to create any national or European champions. She was trying to fight monopolies. Uh, I don't agree with her on each and everything. Politically, probably, she is completely somewhere else than I am. But uh, on, a, on competition, I think that this was the right way to, uh, uh, to follow. And uh, I think that uh, if we stick with that approach, it would be good. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? There's also a question coming from our audience. Um, Mr. Kangarosa, what would be the position of a Sahadi Commission regarding the EU industrial policy? And he refers also to both competition as well as trade. If you can concentrate on the competition, what would be the EU position in industrial policy for, for Europe? Uh, in the field of competition? Yes, industrial policy is very the theme that we are discussing actually more and more in Europe, but competition policy is a very big component of that. Well, again, uh, competition uh, has its own rules, and uh, the main task is to create a level playing field for each and everyone who's entering the market uh, so that the business, the, the enterprise, could play according the same rules. Okay. And of course, in different countries, you have different structure of economy. Some of them are more industrialized. Some of them have a bigger share of heavy industry. Some of them uh, are based more on services. Some of them, Central and Eastern Europe, even more on agriculture. 
So uh, you cannot make you know, some universal case for uh, uh, industrial policy just on a European level because each and every member country is a pretty uh, uh, differently designed. But what we can do is to uh, set a universal rules and to stick with those rules and competition must be part of that. No, that's that's great. So the, the level play field, because that's, I think that's what you think is the, the, the aim of competition policy. But let's take China. China is pursuing policies that are distorting exactly that, the level play field. So how do you impose a strategy that is going to reverse that and actually level the playing field in a global scene? Well, uh, Again, we have investment screening procedure. Uh, if some uh, partly owned or partly state-owned or fully state-owned Chinese companies want to enter European market, they have to behave according our rules and not according their rules. And uh, we have to tell them, look, if you are subsidized uh, from your state, if you uh, if you just do not play according our rules, you simply you simply cannot enter. I just wanted, just wanted to pick up actually on your, on your first answer in, in this section. You talked about how you'd supported what Vestager what has, has done. Sorry, I can never pronounce her name right at some point. Vestager. Neither me, so. Yeah, it's, um, like, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's pronouncing Scandian, Scandinavian names, not, not, not one of my strong points. Um, but the, you, you are, and your programme conveys this, you are a, a, a devout Atlanticist. You believe very strongly in the transatlantic alliance. One of the things she stands, uh, one of the main criticisms that has been of her during her mandate is that she's been anti-American, that she, in her, in her battle against tax avoidance, she has targeted large US companies instead of, instead of rather than focusing on European ones, you know, Apple being uh, one of the best, uh, best, best examples. And, and competition policy is an area where you do have to pick your, pick your battles. And she's picked ones which have, again and again, in a way disturbed the transatlantic alliance, not just under Trump, but under Obama. No, I wouldn't call her anti-American. I, I would call her anti-monopoly. Uh, I would call her as someone who's trying to, uh, to deal with, uh, with dominant players on the market who, who are trying to monopolize the market in some particular areas. So and, uh, I, I don't think that uh, if that happened in Europe, she, she wouldn't act accordingly. So I think that such, such an accusation is a little bit unjust. Mm. I was just going to say, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, if you want access to our markets, you have to play with our rules. And I think that's the, the, what you were promoting. China is uh, 1.4 billion people. And, and it doesn't strike me that they're going to be entirely rule takers when it comes to the global multilateral system. They would at some point want to be uh, rule makers as well as rule takers. Um, how do you deal with the different business model? They have a very different business model, very different rules. How do you, how do you engage with China when you know that their dominance is going to increase? Complicated. Uh, we, we have to insist uh, that insist. European market deserves certain rules that have to be respected, otherwise they cannot operate. And we have to insist on reciprocity. So if they have approached to our market, we have to have the same approach on their market. We have to be very careful about uh, labeling or, or, or geographical indications or uh, label and brand protection of our European products on the Chinese market. And uh, public procurement procedure, once again, we have to be fully allowed to participate in all those procedures and not to be inhibited by some uh, uh, artificially created barriers by Chinese authorities or Chinese bureaucracy, which would prevent European companies to enter. That's uh, probably a set of, uh, of measures we can take. 
I don't, you're very clear in what you're saying. I don't, I don't dispute that, but are you hopeful? This is, I guess, is my question, that we can achieve that, or, or are we inevitably running in a system of retraction where the global system... I am moderately hopeful. Moderately hopeful, that's very good. Thank you, Eva. Jim. Sorry. Uh, you've you've emphasised earlier on that you want the Commission not to be a political institution in the, in, the way that it, in the way that it's been now. I must confess, I've never really understood what the term political commission means. Um, it seems to mean very different things to, to different people. Um, but uh, one, in, when it comes to competition policy, there have been ideas floated by the Germans in, in the last few years about actually breaking DG Comp out and having an in, a fully independent from the Commission European competition regulator on the grounds that that would give more objectivity and more independence. As someone who wants to avoid over avoid politicisation uh, of, of, of these policy areas and of the Commission in general, what do you think of that? Uh, I have to admit I never thought about it seriously. Uh, I've heard about it, but uh, I, I never thought about it too deeply, so I cannot give you a very clear response on this. I, I still believe that it could be part of a commission. If the commission really acts as a uh, civil servant body and not as a quasi-government full of uh, former politicians, uh, prime ministers, and, and, and people like that. So we need, we need fewer politicians uh, in, the, in the Commission and perhaps more people with a scientific background in the Commission. Yes, that would be nice. But would you support the, uh, or not, the, uh, given that you want, as, as Jim said, you want much more of a council-driven in Europe, would you support the, the Franco-German initiative to try and create uh, giants and therefore go against Mr. Uh, Mrs. Vestager? If, it, if it's in accordance with competition rules, mm -hmm. uh, they can do whatever they want. If it's against that, and if there's a threat that they can create some uh, monopolies on the market or some uh, Franco-German champions that should be uh, treated differently or better than the others, then no, it wouldn't be acceptable. But a more general point for that, I suppose, is that who decides what the industrial model of a country is? Is it the commission? replication of rules or is it the countries themselves? If you, if, you, if you talk about competition then it is a commission because there is a set of rules that should be respected by everyone. It's the same like with fiscal compact. Mm -hmm. It's measurable. Uh, you can apply it for every Eurozone country and either the country sticks with the rules or it doesn't. And you can measure that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Actually that touches on one of the questions we had, we had on Slido which was exactly how would you treat Franco, this idea of having Franco-German industrial have, champions, because if, if France, what I understood was uh, from that uh, Aachen Treaty, uh, which was signed just recently, uh, they announced some closer cooperation in some particular areas. I have nothing against that. I, if France and Germany want to harmonise taxes, direct taxes, indirect taxes, whatever, they can do that, but under one condition, they will not force directly or indirectly the others to follow. <laughs> That's, that's, that's the main point. But that, that's exactly their idea, isn't it, ultimately? Yes, to... and, the, and, and that's something I, I absolutely disagree with. If they want to do it themselves, that we, we, we cannot prevent them or we shouldn't object uh, uh, against them to doing that. But they should not uh, pretend that we sooner or later will follow their lead. That shouldn't be the case. Mm. But isn't there a sort of irresistible pressure to do that, ultimately? I mean, if you if In you that have... case, no, there is nothing like irresistible. We have to resist. <laughs> 
But the unity of Europe in terms of meeting global challenges isn't compromised if we go down the route of, you know, some do a little bit here, others do a little bit there. You know, I, I mean, the, the principle of not forcing a country to do something it doesn't want is, of course, undisputable. But, but how do you promote unity and therefore uh, and, and scale? Uh, this is exactly uh, the question of ideological difference. Okay. This has nothing to do with economy. This is, uh, this is the question how you really perceive Europe or European Union and European architecture. Some pe if I simplify the thing to you know, the most understandable two models, some people believe that Europe somehow, step by step, gradually, should go forward to some kind of United States of Europe or European Federal State or something like that. And some people believe that it should be still more intergovernmental and member states, and therefore the council, should have the upper hand. I believe in that model. Mm -hmm. I do not believe in the federal model. Okay. But there isn't the golden middle? Uh, we are in the middle, actually. Is that golden? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's reality. It's yeah. reality. Of course, I would like to have uh, more scaled back European Union. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not it, it would be hard to achieve, probably. Yeah. Uh, but that, what I wouldn't like to have is a Europe which is more federalized. Mm. I see. This was also one of the questions from the audience, was why do you want to be president of an institution that you want to scale back? <laughs> exactly because of that reason, because I feel that it needs to be scaled back. But, um, okay, but, no, but point, point taken, but surely there, uh, there's, when you, when you look at, I mean, so your idea is basically you want to go into the commission in order to, to, what, to, to partly dismantle it or, or just, just to change no, direction? Or? I... Uh, I would like to put uh, to put the commission into its own frame, which which fits to it. Mm. Uh, there is a quotation: "Never uh, think, uh, never think uh, that you can emanate a longer shadow than you are yourself." And this is exactly what you can say about the commission. Some people uh, and mostly former politicians or people like Mr. Juncker, I have mentioned already, think that they might somehow, uh, psychologically and in real steps, move the commission to some form of quasi-government. And as I said several times before, I, I simply disagree with it. I think that it has to be scaled back and it has to be put back to the legal framework to which it belongs. Um, this could be a, an, an opportune moment to make to make a little segue because I'd, I'd actually like to use the last kind of couple of minutes of, or a few minutes of, of this section or part of it to to ask a couple of, uh, of more political questions about about the elections, especially since we've had a lot of questions from from the audience about that. Um, how do you see coalition? For, I mean, obviously, in a in a in a scenario where your group does not win an absolute majority of seats in the European Parliament after the elections. How do you see the coalition forming after that and that, that exercise, given that Manfred Weber has said that his natural partners are the socialists and, and, and the liberals because, he, because of far-right elements within the, within the ECR? Uh, I think that uh, not only Mr. Weber, but uh, everybody will be playing games before the elections. And you, uh, in, a, in upcoming weeks, you would hear a lot of uh, messages, a uh, lot of signals, uh, and a lot of speculations about what kind of coalition could be created. 
I don't know, for instance, uh, let's speculate a little bit. I don't know whether the, the, the socialist group or SND, how, how they call themselves, whether they will be that much willing to join uh, once again a grand coalition with the EPP as a junior partner if uh, there's a clear evidence that they suffered uh, as a junior partner uh, in, the same, in the same manner like they suffered in the grand coalition uh, in the German government. So maybe they might think otherwise and they might think, well, this time we will not participate. We stay in the opposition, we will criticize the commission and uh, maybe we revitalize ourselves in the opposition so that next time in 2024 we'll be able to win again. Uh, so to spec if I was Mr. Weber, I wouldn't be so sure that I can speculate about any future majority in the European Parliament because it is very uncertain what kind of majority could be created. Uh, we are very uncertain uh, of what Mr. Macron is going to do. One day, Mr. Macron says, uh, I will join ALDE, uh, and this will be a strong group. The other day, Mr. Macron says, well, I will not join ALDE. I will form my own group uh, with some ALDE parties, some SND parties, some EPP, some, even some EPP parties. If he does that, and I don't know how far those, those talks are, whether there's a just another speculation or whether there are some real negotiations going on. But if, he's that, if he does that, there will be a completely and entirely new group in the European Parliament that will also play its role, aside the ALDE group. So there's a lot of unknowns, uh, and I think that we have definitely more than one options to create a parliamentary majority. We as ECR, under some circumstances, could be part of one of those options uh, of an ex-parliamentary majority. But I appreciate you're saying it's, it's very uncertain what happens, but isn't there not is there not a risk that essentially everyone wants to be everyone wants to be the big beast in their own band, if you like? In other words, Salvini, it looks like he would like people to coalesce around him rather than him joining an, an, ex, an existing formation. Doesn't that doesn't that present particular problems for the for the ECR, given that the the Conservatives are well may or may not be with us? It's somewhat unclear at the moment. Uh, the fact that conservatives will be leaving uh, sooner or later, maybe they stay with us a few weeks, they will stay with us maybe a uh, few more months, maybe uh, UK will participate in European elections, maybe not. Uh, regardless of that, uh, my, my count, uh, my, my estimation uh, is that we can be uh, more or less the same even without them because all our member parties at this moment are doing uh, somehow better than they did in 2014. So if we lose 18 British MEPs, we can get those 18 back from what I call our own resources. Uh, uh, now, uh, you have Mr. Salvini uh, playing games on his own. Yesterday I read that he would announce on Monday creation of a, a new group uh, uh, of, uh, of him and, and uh, Le Pen and uh, Wilders and AFD, I don't know who else. Uh, he's perfectly free to do that if he wishes to do that. So then you have one, one another group. So if you, if you count with me, you will have EPP, you will have SND, you will have ALDE, you will have ECR, you will have maybe Mr. Macron, uh, new group, and you will have some Eurosceptic group uh, of Mr. Salvini. So then you have six groups, uh, each of them of some considerable number, and then you can try to guess which kind of majority uh, could be created out of those groups. And you have several options. 
where, where do you draw the line on who, you, uh, who you'd accept? I mean, you're, you're talking about organic growth to recover the, the numbers, which is ambitious given wh how, how numerically significant the UK Conservatives are for you at the moment. But where do you draw the line on who you'd accept in terms of new entrants? I mean, you've already got, you've already got the Finns, you're already facing accusations of having various far-right elements in, in the group. Where, where do you actually set a, a line, a cordon sanitaire, and say, right, we're not going to accept you because you are overtly racist or Just to, prob to, problematic in other ways? Okay, one concrete example. Uh, definitely, uh, we would not be ready to accept, for instance, Madame Le Pen. Uh, that, that's for sure. Uh, we have so-called Prague principles, uh, Prague declaration, uh, which sets out our principles for our group. And each and every party which wants to join us has to subscribe to those principles and has to be evaluated whether it fits to those principles. And there has to be vote uh, in the group whether this party will be admitted to, uh, to accept. And this applies to each and every party, including Mr. Salvini or uh, including Swedish Democrats or whoever who already are members of our group because they were adopted. So uh, we, it, it's not just that we, you know, want, we just care about numbers. We have our declaration which sets out our principles and only those parties who are in accordance with that can join the group. I'm afraid, Jim, we are coming, coming to the end. I think we should... Uh, so we open, are going to open the floor I to, think the, we to, should. to the audience. Okay. Opportunity knocks. Whoever asks the first question gets a prize. <laughs> I haven't thought about what the prize is, but I have to some... Collect questions. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Oh, of course. Oh, no. Oh, okay. oh sorry, I think... Oh, no. <laughs> You've uh, taken the microphone. Can we, if you don't mind collecting questions, Marek? <laughs> Marek Dombrowski-Brugel. I have a question about uh, uh, strengthening architecture of the Schengen zone, which went under serious tension. Uh, last few years. Uh, so the question is about external borders, uh, policy, migration, asylum, refugee policy. Mm -hmm. What will be your approach? Wonderful, thank you, Mark. There's one question at the back and then... I'm Bernadette Stegall, I'm the former General Secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation. Um, you've told us that uh, you want to get rid of uh, a number of uh, EU legislation. Would you also want to get rid of uh, the legislation concerning workers' rights, like uh, equal rights, posting of workers, um, and others, health and safety, other um, rights that exist? Thank you. And then just go move forward a little bit. Yeah, there were and the two more questions here. Thank you. Um, Sorry, Gary Ganchev, UN Human Rights. Uh, so bearing in mind, as already mentioned, that some of the members of ECR are uh, de facto far-right parties, how would you deal with the proceedings under Article 70 EU? Thank you. And then, is it, is it Guntram? Yeah, Guntram, yes. Yeah, uh, Guntram Wolf-Brügel, um, I wanted to follow up on the question that you raised, uh, uh, the question that you answered on climate uh, change. Uh, I'm not sure I understood your answer. Is climate change uh, human-induced or not, in your view? Mm -hmm. Okay, let's start with this four and we can have another one. Yeah. Uh, I might yeah. get the microphone back. <laughs> Thank you. Schengen. Uh, I was in Bulgaria two weeks ago. Uh, uh, I talked to the Bulgarian Prime Minister Borisov, and uh, of course, Bulgaria, Romania very much want to be part of Schengen. 
Uh, I think that uh, we should be somehow reflecting this. We should be receptive to this. And uh, Borisov told me one thing. I do not need uh, stronger Frontex. I do not need more money from the European Union to protect external borders of the European Union. I can do it myself. Bulgaria is one of those border countries. I only want EU not to interfere into my own migration and asylum policy. And I have to say that I very much agree with what the Bulgarian Prime Minister said. I was very much against uh, any you know, arbitrary uh, redistribution of migrants throughout Europe. Uh, I would believe that if we believe still in the concept of nation-state, and I believe that, that the ultimate right and one of the attributes of, of state sovereignty is to grant asylum or permanent settlement or temporary settlement or even citizenship, this is just a, a, a privilege. This is not kind of automatic uh, thing. And uh, I believe that this should be this should be left in the hands of, of nation states. What we can do, what we should do, everybody knows, better protect external borders. And I believe that uh, this is another, for another second thoughts, how we can reshuffle our budget and whether we can, you know, uh, uh, create some, let's say, more funded chapter for uh, protection of external borders and whether we can help strengthen national capacities, and I repeat, national capacities of border countries like Spain uh, and Italy and Greece and others, instead of only inflating Frontex, because I think that their national security capacities are better equipped to, uh, to, to do the job. Uh, Sorry, if I may pick up on this, on this second. So, do you believe if, if indeed, uh, you know, the the way if countries are allowed to choose, and of course they should, the way they should promote their migration policy and who to accept and who not to accept, is that not incompatible with Schengen? Once again, isn't that not incompatible with Schengen? So, can we have free movement of people, but differentiated policy in terms of the way that we deal with asylum? Process? No, uh, I think that we can we can keep Schengen still, uh, we can keep it alive, uh, and at the same time, we have to keep the, the 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 right or the jurisdiction of national states when it comes to asylum policies. Okay, sorry, trying to interrupt you. Uh, now. Uh, I'm sorry, but I have the feeling that I didn't uh, get right the question number two and number three. So, was it that uh, if, if I was if I was talking about the reduction of uh, of legislation? Exactly. Uh, so what would you do with legislation on workers' rights uh, in in the in, in the EU? I, um, so uh, so uh, le EU labour law. I imagine also. No, I think rights. I think that uh, uh, welfare and uh, labour code and uh, of course there are some you know universal uh, rules uh, that are written in the uh, in the Charter of Fundamental Rights and uh, this is something that uh, shouldn't be changed. But they are very vague and and very general. And when it comes to uh, real legal provisions, when it comes to, uh, for instance, the labour code. Uh, or social policy uh, and things like that, they are fully under the competence of uh, individual nation states and not under the competence of the European Union. And it should, it should stay so. Uh, if I got uh, the question right. No. no. Would you get rid of the posting of workers' directives? Would you get rid of equal we need directives? We need, yeah. the, we need the, otherwise we can't. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Let, let's 
let's be precise. Would you get rid of the posting of workers directive? Would you get rid of equal rights directive? Would you get rid of health and safety directives that exist? You mean existing directives? Yes, Those sure. two? No. Uh, then uh, another question was uh, about Article 7 against Poland and uh, Hungary. We as a group voted against the uh, uh, invocation of those two articles and we would do it again. Uh, we didn't think that it was uh, uh, appropriate reason for starting such procedure and we would rather prefer some further negotiations between the Commission and, uh, and uh, respective governments and not uh, you know, to go for such a strict measure. Uh, and the last one, whether I believe that uh, the climate change is uh, caused by, uh, by humans or whether they are part of some natural uh, uh, long-term cycles, it's both. Uh, there is definitely a part which is man-made and this is something we have, we, we can deal with uh, and we have to deal with and we have instruments how to deal that. But on the other hand, there is also uh, one part of that which is a part of natural cycles and that would be very hard to, uh, to influence by any human actions or activities. Okay. What, is, what is our responsibility, what is man-made? Uh, we have to deal with that. Okay, I have three more people here. Uh, four there. Uh, we'll start here from the front, from the lady here in front. Thank you. Good morning, Jarka Hlopkova. I have one question with two parts. And uh, the first part is um, we have touched on uh, kind of reducing the legislation and yet to kind of cover um, what the lady asked for social rights. For example, um, the treaty guarantees free movement of workers um, within the EU. How would you? So, so let's say if a Czech is working in Belgium and the Czech wants to stay Czech and doesn't want to become Belgium, and yet Belgium, for example, is is doing problem of uh, of uh, making the Czech uh, uh, <coughs> making the Czech um, um, adopt some Belgium uh, like citizenship, residency, etc., etc., etc. So I'm saying this only as an illustration. The question is, how would you go about that? On that the, the spirit of the legislation in place is guaranteed without over-regulating, because my personal feeling is that I'm sometimes... I'm sorry, can you just ask the question, because there's other people okay. that want to ask you. Sometimes the over-regulation uh, is just creating a muddle. Sure. Yeah? sure. And your my question second is... Part, yeah. second part of the question, if you get, I hope, a big part of the... Um, of the parliament, of the seats, whom you would like to cooperate going well, into the coalition. Yes, thank you. thank you very much. There's a question here from the lady here at the front. Yeah. I'm uh, Roberta from the American Chamber of Commerce to the European Union. And uh, my question is actually mainly personal, and I follow up on what you say about this, this like uh, idea of uh, introducing uh, this uh, multi-currency within the treaties. And I'm wondering if you want to add like this paragraph plus the paragraph on um, allowing other countries to go out of the Eurozone, wouldn't you be worried that opening up negotiation for the treaties would open up a Pandora box and many other things would come okay. out? Clear question. Thank you. The, ge the gentleman here, then the gentleman at the back. 
Thank you. My, my name is uh, Christian Schmitz. I'm a lobbyist chiefly for business interests. And you've said quite a lot of things that businesses would welcome, especially about uh, legislation, about perhaps a less political commission. You yourself have been in the European Parliament for nearly 15 years, so you know very well how this institution functions. Uh, you spoke about the regulatory scrutiny board, you spoke about impact assessments, but one real issue has been, of course, that the European Parliament can do whatever it wants once there is a European Commission proposal. I'd like to invite you to comment a little bit more about the political role of the European Parliament and how it could uh, perhaps scrutinize very closely uh, the way itself, uh, it, the way it deals with legislative proposals itself. Okay, these are big questions. Then one question here at the back, and I think that would be all for today. Alessandro Gangarossa from Global Council. Um, I wanted to ask you a, a little bit more about industrial policy um, because it's not only about competition, uh, but it's also about probably plans to support industry in the long term to compete globally with uh, Chinese and US companies. So how do you see a long-term strategy for industrial policy, if there is going to be an industrial strategy? And the second question, very briefly, is uh, for example, Lega is uh, trying to find new allies, even within your group, to form a stronger alliance of Eurosceptic parties. Uh, and that would allow your groups like ECR, NF, uh, and FDD to have a stronger voice and a stronger group in, in order to be able to influence uh, more actively uh, the EU and the legislation. Would you think that would be possible, would be reasonable, and uh, what are the conditions in order to reach this, this sort of group? Okay. Thank you. Mr. Okay. Uh, four questions. One uh, about the cross-border uh, uh, social rights and working conditions and so on. Uh, again, uh, I think that uh, uh, I would never buy, for instance, uh, the idea of President Macron about European uh, minimum wage, because you cannot introduce anything like that in such diverse economies, uh, like one, on one hand, Netherlands, on the other hand, Bulgaria, with completely uh, different purchasing power. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, if, if some citizen of some particular country works and lives and is residing in some other country, uh, and if he or she fulfills the criteria for being part of the welfare system or pension system or uh, social insurance or, or healthcare system, then uh, he or she uh, should be allowed to do so and should not be discriminated. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's very clear. But uh, it differs from country to country, uh, I believe. And this is because we have different social systems, we have different pension systems, we have different healthcare insurance uh, uh, in each and every country. And I, I don't believe that it could be and should be united and unified on the European level. Uh, point number two uh, was uh, which uh, future partners I would like to work with in the next European Parliament. Of course, I would be happy if the grand coalition between EPP and Socialists would end, and if some, let's say, ideological, more coherent uh, coalition would be created, perhaps uh, uh, from EPP and Liberals and us, uh, which I believe would have much closer, uh, economically, much closer approach uh, to some particular issues uh, than this grand coalition between uh, between uh, EPP and Socialists. Thirdly, uh, uh, 
Pandora's box. Uh, no, I, I'm not afraid of that. I think, uh, on the contrary, it would be healthy to have uh, provision that allows orderly exit from the Eurozone. Uh, and I think it, it would be healthy to have it codified uh, in, a, in a primary law, in an in a EU treatise. Uh, in that case, in, in a Lisbon treaty. Uh, and uh, four was about industrial policy and one particular... And the European Korea. Parliament. Yes, and about European Parliament. Uh, again, I hope that uh, if there is a, a different majority, uh, more, let's say, business-friendly majority in the next European Parliament, the behaviour of the European Parliament could change as well. Uh, I've been here since 2004. I've been dealing with EP matters even before, because uh, since 1998, when I was still a member of my national parliament, I was uh, a head of the, of the Czech parliamentary delegation to the European Parliament, so I've been dealing with that political business for more than 20 years. And as far as I remember, everything uh, was run always by a grand coalition of DPP and socialists. I believe that if that majority is going to change, and I firmly believe that it is going to change after these elections, then I think that we can get more, let's say, business-friendly uh, environment even in the European Parliament. Uh, and uh, industrial policy, uh, again, uh, we have, uh, as European, when I speak as a potential Commission President, we have as a Commission a budget. Uh, that budget could and should be used in some ways. And we have those cohesion funds, and I think that we should and could and have to use uh, them in a smart way, uh, not just you know spend them on, uh, as you put it, uh, uh, some you know uh, monuments of this or that politician, but uh, in, a, in a rather thoughtful way that would allow to improve infrastructure and interconnectivity. And uh, that would, you know, help maybe to some underdeveloped areas to get better approach to uh, to the overall market, uh, transportation, uh, and uh, uh, also uh, communications. And that that could be in an indirect way, of course, indirectly, a support of industrial policy as well. Uh, what I wouldn't like to do, uh, and I said that already, I wouldn't like to follow this grand or grandiose <laughs> of plans, uh, for instance, of Mr. Juncker on that stimulus package. I don't think that this is the, the right task for the Commission. And the last was about Lega and Mr. Salvini. Uh, again, uh, I understand at this moment that Mr. Salvini is ready to form his uh, own group. Uh, uh, I have nothing more to add to that. Uh, if he one day would change his mind and he would decide to apply for an ECR membership, he can do that. We will consider his application according our Prague Declaration, our principles, and he either will be admitted or not. Uh, that's, that's another question. But at the moment, I don't think that we have, we should even think about it if he announced that he will announce his own group next Monday. So uh, it's. The, the chapter is closed for the time being. Jim. So, um, well, are I, think we, we, I think we just... Yeah, I'm afraid that we are now out of time. Um, so all that's left for me to do is to thank Jan so much for being with us this morning, for answering all our questions. It was, it was fascinating to delve deeper into, into your programme and, uh, and we covered, a, well, we covered a, a very wide range of issues in the end. So thanks so much for that. And thank you all for being here too and have a very good rest of the day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mrs. Harvey, good luck in your elections. Thank, thank you.